Hello, Seattle. Hello, Portland. We're coming out to see you this January live. That's right. What are the dates, my friend? Uh, January 15th, we're going to be at the Moore Theater in Seattle. And on January 16th, we're going to be at Revolution Hall again in Portland. That's right. Tickets are being snapped up fast, everyone, because mm-hmm. you love us out there. And we love you right back. So just go to SYSKLive.com for all ticket details. We can't wait to see you. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and there's Jerry Rowland, and it's us, Stuff You Should Know, the Nuclear Investigators. I thought this was really neat. I did, too. And I did, too. I had a silly title. I thought, how good is this going to be? But... Then you and our article was good enough, but then you found that great article from uh, Economist. The Economist, yeah, man, that was good. Yes, yeah, our article was written by Robert Lamb, and it was great. But it gets even better. Yeah, like people should. <clears throat> I think this is one of those like take twenty minutes out of your day and read the Nuke Detectives from the Economist. Just yep. good, like, and we'll give you a good overview here, but just good knowledge to have, you know. Yeah, because you don't really think about this, but there is, in my opinion, thankfully, a an international network of people who are dedicated to preventing people from getting nukes mm-hmm. who should who 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 shouldn't have it, depending on who you are. Right. Like there's a there's a whole. Um, I looked up a, this uh, question, like <clears throat> like is it the right of any sovereign nation? to have whatever nuclear technology it wants. Yeah. And I saw um, that's actually apparently like, you know, those sites like debate.org and like debate prep sites or something. They'll have like a bunch of different brain teasers. Uh, yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Um, and that seems to be mostly where it lives. But I found this one guy on Forbes who argued that is not the case that if you have not demonstrated a um, uh, like a, an allegiance to liberal democratic principles and freedom uh, and that you're just looking out for your people, that's your role as a government. That is to say, like, if you're an autocratic government, you haven't, you don't have enough sovereign cred to, to enjoy the right to nukes. This is how this guy was arguing against like North Korea having the right to a nuclear program. Right. Right. But my thing is, I think it goes even further than that. I I think that that assumes, because he was also saying at the same time, if you are a friendly nation and you are a liberal democracy, um, you kind of should have the right to a military nuclear program. But like liberal democracies can change over time. The nukes are going to remain. So what was once a friendly nation may not be. 30 or 50 years from now, yeah. but they're still going to have a nuclear stockpile or some governments dissolve. Look at the USSR. They had one of the the world's largest nuclear arsenals, still do, but then the government just disintegrated and it turned into the Russian Federation, which has arguably much looser control over the nuclear stockpile. And yeah. we talked about this and how easy is it to steal a nuclear bomb, that episode we did. Yeah, I think after after the Soviet Union dissolved, that was uh that was a really scary time and continues we continue to see the fallout from that mm-hmm. as far as the, the black market trade on uh 
nuclear either weapons or uh, the the technology or the information yep. or, or the pieces parts, the mouth parts, <laughs> right? As we like to say, yeah. Around here, and luckily, like you said, there is a field called nuclear forensics, and as Robert astutely points out, they have sort of a three track uh, challenge on their hands, which is <clears throat> a what they do is they monitor places and countries um, and organizations. Uh, so they can basically stop them from developing nuclear arms if they're not supposed to be, uh, people on the, on the no-no list. Mm-hmm. Then they track, uh, extremist groups and smugglers and try to find out where these, you know, there's a lot of, we'll get to it later, but a lot of stuff goes missing, which is super scary. Yeah. Can I just interject here for a second? In sure. 2011, the U.S., the United States announced that it could not account for 5,900 pounds of weapons-usable nuclear material <laughs> that it had previously shipped around the world. Wow. And that's the Just U.S. Just gone. 5,900. They said it was enough for dozens of nuclear warheads. And then finally, the uh, the third thing that you will do as a nuclear detective or in the field of nuclear forensics is if something does happen, if there is a radiological attack or a nuclear bomb that goes off or is launched, they are the ones who will investigate the the scene just like you would any crime scene exactly yeah so that's the those are like kind of the three things that a, a nuclear forensic detective i guess if, is the best way to to put it um would be involved in doing and there's a lot of other science around it and research around it too which is why you you very rarely find somebody who is a full-time at least in the US i should say is a full-time nuclear forensics expert most of the time they're doing the science that's helping the field, right? So, like, there's there's a pro- a project at um, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory to identify the the um, elemental signature of the uranium that comes from all 150 uranium mines that have ever existed on planet Earth, right? So, <clears throat> if you come across a sample of uranium, um, you can you can trace it back to its point of origin. That's something that you would do if you were a nuclear forensics expert when you're not actually, like, say, investigating a case or um, carrying out a routine inspection of a, a non-military nuclear state, that kind of thing. Yeah, they're like football referees. Kind of. They and side the, gigs. Right. And it's pretty cool that these guys even exist, right? That The idea that there are people out there who are inspecting states um, – and by states, I mean countries, obviously. I'm using it in like the, the security kind of way, mm-hmm. right? Um, people out there whose job it is, is to say, um, you are not holding up to international standards. We think that you are going down the road toward a military nuclear program. That's not allowed. We're going to tell. Yeah. And Robert, uh, has a, a neat little way to put, uh, we talked about mutually assured destruction many years ago, I think, mm-hmm. in a show. And in 1970, 190 nations signed the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, a.k.a. NPT. Mm-hmm. Is that confusing? A.k.a. NPT? I think that's like the <laughs> uh, the acronyms, the abbreviation of the Non-Proliferation <laughs> Treaty. That's right. I think. Uh, but he talks about mutually assured destruction like this, like uh, a movie uh, standoff where – and I always equate this with reservoir dogs, like a, two people oh, aiming yeah. a gun or three people aiming a gun at one another. Mm-hmm. Um, 
if you are all three aiming the gun at one another, then there is a likelihood that no one will fire because you could all die and maybe you will just lower your guns. And that's sort of the idea with mutually assured destruction. If we all have, not all, but if these nations have nuclear weapons, they know that just exchanging nuke fire, everyone's seen war games, uh, you can't win. So you can't win. The, the trick comes in when someone else comes into that room, like in Reservoir Dogs, when Lawrence Tierney comes in at the very end, and they're already pointing their guns, and then you've got a new gun on the scene, and that's when everybody dies. Right, or I guess probably an even better analogy <laughs> is that with the non-proliferation treaty, if somebody came in, right? Proliferates? If, if, say, Barbara Streisand came into the standoff in Reservoir Dogs in a complete surprise twist in the director's cut of the movie <laughs> and said, everybody, everybody, calm down, lower your guns. Here's a little number from Yentl. Right. And she does her little number, and it just charms everybody into forgetting their troubles, and they put their guns up, and that's that. That's the aim of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. It goes even further than that. Imagine... If Babs, as she was walking around doing her number from Yentl, mm-hmm. um, she was like taking everybody's guns up too. And then maybe disassembling them quickly with a little jazzy number going. And, um, that was that. So not only is there the non-proliferation treaty, it was, it was saying everybody calm down. That's mutual assured destruction, I guess. The non-proliferation treaty comes in and says, not only are you going to calm down, let's get rid of some of these nuclear weapons, too. Let's disassemble them. Right. But when Lawrence Tierney or Barbara Streisand walk in with a gun, a.k.a. NPT, <laughs> a.k.a. having another another nuclear player all of a sudden, that disrupts the the weird balance that is – Mutually assured destruction. It does, for sure. But that, which is why a lot, I think 190 nations ratified the nuclear non, non-proliferation treaty, um, which says, yes, all of you guys with all of your big nukes and everything, get rid of some of those. We don't like them being here on planet Earth. And the problem with that is, is that the, the organization that was created to oversee this, the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency, I think, yeah, the IAEA. They're basically, they amount to nuclear accountants, right? Their whole jam is that they are, um, they go in and they say the international community says that you can have this, um, you can have nuclear capabilities for peaceful purposes, for like yeah. power generation sure. or for your hospitals or whatever, but you can't have it. You can't have a military program. And, and there, you, it's not hard once you have one to, to have the other, right? Once you have a, a peaceful program down, it would not be very hard to translate that into a military program. The IAEA is tasked with coming to your country, coming behind your borders and looking at your, your program and making sure that it's non-military. And if everything checks off, they can turn around and say to the rest of the world, this country is keeping their promise and all they have is a peaceful program. Everybody can be friends with this guy. Or if they find that there is evidence of a military program, they say, guys, um, you're going to want to hear about this. North Korea over here is secretly working on a nuclear program and We've done our jobs. Now it's up to the international community to figure out what to do about it. 
Right. But here's the thing is, you know, they're a, a UN organization. So these are the above board, let me come and knock on your door and get an invitation to come in and inspect your stuff. Uh-huh. I got all my machines, all my gear that can sniff out radiation and you, you allow me in or you don't allow me in. This isn't the, the clandestine, uh, FBI and, and spy agencies that very much also do the same thing mm-hmm. from satellites and, you know, and all kinds of other ways on the ground. But the IAEA, it really depends on these UN mandates and cooperation from the countries. So, for instance, in 2002 and 2007, North Korea said, um, kindly leave our country. And they had to do so. Yes. You know, it's not like they draw a gun then and say, no, we're here to inspect your stuff. Don't you get it? Right. But what they do is basically go tell the people with the guns, right? So that's that's like a real red flag. Oh, sure. To not let the IAEA yeah. access if to you. Like, you can look everywhere program. but uh, in this room. Right. <laughs> that's not a or, good thing. Oh, yeah, or to kick them out. Like that that really raises red flags and it did in that in those instances too, right? Yeah. So, yes, they are toothless. I mean, it is, after all, a U.N. body. But they are backed up by the collective might of the nuclear military nations um, who say they're basically this is the state, the status quo of the world. There's eight countries that have a nuclear program. Most of them are allies um, and they are tasked, those allies have taken it upon themselves to say no one else can have a nuclear program. You're not supposed to have a nuclear program. You're not supposed to be building nukes. We say if you can have a military nuclear program and we say no. And every once in a while, a state that is not part of that group comes up on their own with their own military nuclear program. And when they do, the other countries have to decide what to do about it. Yeah, and they, you know, the IAEA does very good work. Uh, it works to a certain degree, like in 2003, when they said, hey, Libya, hey, Iran, we have evidence now that you have uh, a military program going. Mm-hmm. And so Libya said, all right, I'm going to give that up. Iran at least gave up their suppliers uh, in Pakistan. Yeah, AQ Khan. Yeah, and they do good work. They won a Nobel Peace Prize in 2005. However, depending on who you ask, um, like the United States may say, you guys are being too nice and too lenient. Uh, countries that are getting inspected say, well, I think you're actually being a little bit too nosy. So it's definitely the above board approach, UN style to getting this, uh, curbed. Right. There, um, there are a lot of other ways to f- like look into whether or not somebody has a military program. We'll, we'll take a little break and we'll talk about those. How about that? Yes. So, Chuckers, we were talking about the above boards way where the U.N. politely knocks on your door and does some inspections. And there's some cool stuff that they have going on, right? Like they install digital cameras in the facilities and they they're like set and programmed to take uh, pictures if there's movement near like a a, um, a piece of equipment that could turn this peaceful 
nuclear program into a military program. Mm -hmm. And then they're all time stamped and dated and ordered sequentially. So if there's any missing, some software will catch the fact that a, a, a picture has been deleted. And now all of a sudden you've got an international incident, right? That's right. Um, they also use laser surveying equipment to survey the layout of the, um, uh, the, uh, oh, what are they called? The, oh, the centrifuges. Yeah. The piping of the centrifuges. Because with, so you have to have a centrifuge to have a peaceful nuclear program, right? Like you take, um, uranium and uranium has like 0.7% uranium in it. Uranium ore, I should say, the stuff that you find in nature. Now to have like, n to create nuclear fuel for a nuclear power plant, you've got to, you've got to isolate that the uranium-235 isotope. And you do that by spinning it in gas in a vacuum so fast that you're hitting like 70,000 RPMs and it separates the isotopes. And then those things are connected, all those, all those centrifuges are connected by tubes of gas so that the isotopes you want all kind of mingle and migrate to uh, the place you want them to, to where you collect them. And then all of a sudden you have 3% concentration of uranium. Now you have um, nuclear fuel that you can use for peaceful purposes. If you keep it going, if you make some upgrades to your whole composition um, and rearrange the pipes a little bit here or there, and you can get that stuff up to 90% con um, concentration of uranium-235, now you have weapons-grade uranium. Now you can build nuclear warheads with that. What the IAEA does with their laser surveys of these centrifuge gas pipes is they, they survey them, digitize that, and then do it again when they come a year or two years later and see if there's been any alterations or modifications to that pipe that it would indicate that they're trying to, to make that uranium uh, even more enriched. Yeah, so this is, this is the IAEA's good work that they're doing. Uh, and this is when they, you know, like we said, go to countries uh, that say, come on in. Then there is a, a whole other problem that is um, – terrorists and drug cartels and basically the black market, uh, nuclear black market. And that's a whole different deal. You can't go knocking on their door and they're not going to say, come on in. You probably don't even know where their door is, <laughs> right? which is the whole point. So if you're wondering, like, is how big of an issue is this? How much should we worry? Uh, just go read a little document called the IAEA Illicit Trafficking Database. Um, it's a little frightening. So what they will do is they'll it's it's not very long they have like a two or three page report and I think the most recent one I saw was 2015 numbers uh where they will basically say how many incidents of unauthorized um acquisition possession use transfer or disposal of nuclear or radioactive materials were there and there was the good news is it's gone down there was some huge spike in 2006 when you look at these charts, I have no idea what happened in 2006, mm -hmm. but it's sort of level. And then 2006, it just like ramps up. Like, uh, I think there were 130 something cases in 2006 compared Weird. to just over 40 in 2015. Yeah, that's a pretty big spike. It's a big spike. And like the graphs really, really stand out. So I don't know what was going on then, but it's still a little scary to see just how many cases there are where things go missing or things are not disposed of right or right. things are are 
acquired or sold on the black market. And this is just the stuff they know about. Yeah, this is these are just the ones that got caught. Right. Um, and, you know, that whole nonproliferation um, is a it's a double edged sword as well as far as the nuclear black market goes, because, yes, you're disassembling nuclear warheads. But then that means that nuclear grade uh, plutonium or uranium is now being transported somewhere for storage or something like that. Right. So it's back in play, I guess. Whereas before you'd have to steal the whole nuclear warhead. Now you just have a big lump of weapons grade uranium that's being transported across the Atlantic, you know? Yeah. So that, that represents a, a security, um, a change in security too. I wonder if there were a bunch of nuclear warheads that were disassembled that year. I don't know. I'm sure, I bet someone knows the answer though. I want to know that we'll write in. So like you were saying, like there is the whole black market, um, that's, that represents an, an entirely different, um, side to this. And there are plenty of, um, terrorist organizations and just what you would call bad actors, which is hilarious, but it's also pretty sinister if you think about it, who would just like to get their hands on this kind of stuff. Yeah. Some of the people though, that they're selling it to are representatives of countries that want to have their own military program, um, like North Korea or Iraq. Um, I should say Saddam Hussein era Iraq. Uh, which were both successful in creating nuclear programs right under the noses of the international intelligence community. Yeah, and, you know, well, we'll get to that a little bit later, like how some of the ways that they can skirt this stuff. Okay. But but the good news is, is that it is, uh, y- you can't just get uranium at the corner store. Right. You can only mine for it in certain places. You can't. Uh, you can't just get that uranium and throw it into a hand grenade casing and then you have a little tiny nuclear bomb. Well, that's a dirty bomb at least. Well, yeah, there are such things as dirty bombs. But as far as like nuclear warheads, mm-hmm. um, they they have to be made in very special ways with very special materials. Right. And it's uh, the good news is, is that I won't say it's easy, but it is it is all pretty trackable to a certain degree. On like these nuclear forensics teams, they can generally find out even by examining, uh, examining the uranium, like where it actually came from or where, where did this casing come from? It can be tracked pretty well, readily at this point. Yeah. And that's where the, um, like the, where the nuclear forensic scientists are also doing like the day to day science to create a database. Like, uh, the signatures of uranium from the 150 mines around the around the world. Right. That's where that stuff kind of comes into play is when you find something, you know, the the dude who's smuggling it, he may give up whoever he knows, but that doesn't mean it's going to lead anywhere. Um, actually studying the material that he was smuggling is um, it, it can frequently give up more information than that person even knows. You know? Yeah, for sure. Uh, but to do that, you have to catch the material, um, when it's say coming through your border or your port. And there are, um, well, there's, there's a number of ways to do this, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, you can do a lot with satellite imagery, of course. Um, but you can only do so much with satellite imagery. Like to really, to really find this stuff. I mean, the good news is radiation gives off radiation. So, or these, these, uh, uranium and stuff like that gives off radiation. Right. But you need to be on, like, ideally, you need to be on the ground and fairly close to it to read it. 
Yeah, the detectors have gotten way better. Supposedly, they they need like um, just a fifth of the mass that it used to take to yeah. set off a reading. Um, but yeah, you still have to be. I think the the next generation will be basically a football field, an American football field length. That's pretty good, hundred yards. Yeah, hundred yards, roughly a hundred meters. Um, but that means that you have to have a person in a hostile nation you know, walking around with a detector mm-hmm. within a football field of a nuclear facility. That's, that's a lot of, um, that's, that's, that's a tall order in a lot be. of cases, yeah. right? Um, there are detectors that are attached to satellites that can detect, um, radiation into the atmosphere. That's amazing. <clears throat> yeah. And apparently they've gotten a lot better too. But the problem is, is that radiation, there's a couple of things with actual radiation. Um, it can be shielded relatively easily with a thick layer of concrete. Yeah, or lead. Um, or lead. Um, and the stuff that does escape can get absorbed into the atmosphere. Yeah. So I think the detectors, like satellite detectors, are getting much better than they were before. And probably the stuff that we know about here in this article is probably 10 years old. I'm sure we're far more advanced than this article would would say as far as something like a a radiation detector attached to a satellite goes. Oh, like even the two-year-old article you think is yeah. behind? Yeah, I think I think so. I as think far at as any what they given released point, to the public? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, what, get, you, yeah. I, I get what you're laying down. <laughs> wink, so, wink. so I think that it's probably much better, but again, um, radiation can be, it, it, it can be shielded. One thing that they, that uh, nuclear detectives have figured out though, is that there's a part of a nuclear reactor uh, not a part of it, but something that's created in nuclear reactors, um, neutrinos that you can't do anything about. They're going to escape because they pass so easily through matter that they <clears throat> will actually travel through solid earth, uh, un, unfazed by anything it comes in contact with. Yeah. Um, and they've created this. Do you, you, did you see Cosmos, the reboot with Neil deGrasse Tyson? Uh, yeah, I saw some of them. Did you see the one where he was like in a boat in like a, neutrino cave underground i did not so it's really neat like he's standing up in a boat in this really dark cave that had like little lights or something kind of starlight it was a romantic scene and what where he was was um this cave underground i think it's the one in ohio where it's underground in an old salt mine and it's filled with water and it's underground to protect it from cosmic rays that could give off false readings. But it's meant to pick up neutrinos that are traveling through the Earth from uh, nuclear reactors, right? Yeah. And the way that it does that is since neutrinos interact like almost not at all with matter, which is why they can pass unaffected through solid Earth, um, when it comes in contact with a certain atom in water, it gives off the faintest flash of light. And if you have enough water, this is actually so a pretty rare occurrence when it happens. But if you have enough water, it's going to happen eventually, and you're going to be able to detect it with underwater photosensors, right? So what they've done is fill this old salt mine with a huge, like supposedly it will take like a million tons of water to detect to detect neutrinos from a hundred a thousand kilometers away um but when a, a hostile nation or a nation that's not supposed to have a nuclear program runs an on-off cycle of their nuclear uh, re- enrichment 
reactor, or uh, they're enriching their nuclear material, you will be able to detect that through neutrinos in your underground cave neutrino detector. Isn't that <laughs> wow. insane? Yeah. Think about how much trouble that is, but that it actually works. It's amazing. I think it's amazing, too. And and Neil deGrasse Tyson is the man. Can we just say that again? Oh, yeah, for sure. All right. Should we take a break here? Sure. All right. We'll come back and we'll talk a little bit more about sort of the latest and greatest technology we have going, as well as some other sneaky ways to hide this kind of activity right after this. All right, so I can't stress enough that uh, this great economist article called The Nuke Detectives, mm-hmm. uh, I really learned a lot from it. And there's this um, – it kind of starts out by talking about um, – and this is if you have not prevented someone from getting uh, nuclear materials mm-hmm. and they are actually doing nuclear tests, which ideally you have stopped the, the process before that. But <clears throat> let's be honest, uh, sometimes things slip through the cracks – People get their hands or countries get their hands or rogue nations and terrorists get their hands on these materials and they want to test out um, bombs and things. Yeah. They are now using some amazing uh, equipment, seismic, seismographic equipment. Would that be the way to say it? Yeah. To detect this stuff to the point now, uh, there's, a, there's a group called the uh, Preparatory Commission for the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty Organization. Uh, and that's a fancy way of saying they listen around the world with these seismograph machines to the point where Dr. Zerbo, which is the greatest name ever. I know, especially <laughs> for like a nuclear, international nuclear scientist. Dr. Zerbo says now it is impossible to test the smallest nuclear weapon anywhere on Earth in secret. They will hear it. Yep. It's amazing. Yeah, the uh, the uh, CTBTO, the Con- the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty Organization, right? Is that correct? That is correct. They have, so I saw it listed somewhere, but this this article kind of lays it out. They have 170 seismic stations worldwide. Yeah, 11 underwater hydroacoustic centers. Yep. So you can detect the sound waves in the ocean. 60 atmospheric infrasound listening stations. They're just showing off at that point. Right, I know. And then 96, uh, radio, nu- radio nucleide, nuclide sampling facilities. I think that's the ones that like, like those satellites that can detect radiation leaks. Yeah. I think that's, that's like that. So yeah, like around the world, they've got it locked down. You cannot set off a nuclear weapon and them not know about it. That is correct. Uh, another big thing that they're doing now is, uh, software, network analysis software, uh, after 9-11, America really started ramping up, as everyone knows, their, uh, listening skills. Um, <laughs> and not in like a polite, my friend has some issues they need to talk through way. Right. You know what I mean? Like me. Uh, so they now have all the software that can, it's sort of, I think uh, the feeling I get is what the software now does, it's able to just draw from 
all these different areas, whether it's email or social media mm-hmm. or phone calls or receipts and credit card transactions. Yeah, like Prism. Yeah, and it will just it'll feed it all into these this these software programs now that will eventually narrow it down to hey, this person might be a baddie because they have ticked mm-hmm. off uh not as an angered, but they have checked so many boxes <laughs> right. in our software system of activities that they're undertaking that you might want to go take a look at them. Yeah, and the things that this uh did you say the name Aura? O R A? I did not. So Aura is a good example of this kind of software. It's from Carnegie Mellon. And basically it it has been uh, adapted to not just track terrorists, but to track nuclear scientists now. I think like 30,000 of them around the world. Yeah. So if you're a nuclear scientist and you're in the prime of your career and you publish an article every 18 to 36 weeks on average, according to the computer, and all of a sudden you just stop, you're going to set off a red flag. They're going to wonder why you stopped publishing at the height of your career. Yeah. And they're going to say, you know, it's entirely possible that they got drafted into a uh, nuclear military program where you would not be allowed to publish. So that might set off a red flag. Mm-hmm. And then there's another computer, um, I think the Pentagon is set up called Constellation. The Whopper. Which again is probably, yeah, it's probably 20 years out of date by now if it's in this article. But this Constellation is a computer that takes the information from all these other computer, all these other softwares, and puts them together and says, oh, well, not only did that guy stop publishing at the height of his nuclear science career, he also just moved within commuting distance of a um, a facility that is suspected by Army intelligence of possibly being uh, holding nuclear centrifuges that, that aren't registered anywhere. Yeah, and there uh, there are other programs. There's one uh, software program that uses what's called combinatorial mathematics, and what they do is they analyze data to end up with a set of criteria called uh, centrality, betweenness, and degree. Centrality, uh, centrality being how important someone is in the system. Uh, betweenness is their access to other people, and the degree is the number of people they interact with. Right. And the idea there is what they're looking for generally are network members that have high betweenness and low degree. So those are probably like Osama bin Laden is, is a good example, like toward the end. He has access to a lot of people, but he's not interacting with a lot of people. Well, he's like a high up, a higher up, I think is what it indicates. Somebody of importance in the network, right? Yeah. And um that's that, this is all extremely gee whiz. But then you hear about, oh, it's actually being applied in real life. Um, back in, I think, 2010, 11, 12, at least five nuclear scientists working on Iran's nuclear program were murdered. Um, one of them was like picking his child up or dropping his child off at daycare, like yeah, I remember just, all this. just gunned down by guys in the street or um, car bombs or something like that. And the one thing that they had in common was that they were all working on Iran's nuclear program. Um, and they think that the Mossad used intelligence that was gathered by these this type of software program to figure out th- if you kill these people, it will really screw up the program because they're important figures yeah. in this program. Even though we don't know them, we know their names, and that's it. We don't know anything about them. Just based on this metadata that, that these programs put together, we can tell you that if, if they weren't around any longer, it would set the whole program back, and they did. 
Yeah, and uh, like I was saying earlier, the good news is, is if you want to build, and again, we're not talking about dirty bombs and stuff, but if you want to build a nuclear warhead, there are very specialized parts that you have to buy um, in order to do so. So they have a software that monitors this stuff around the world, and what this article calls, um, they reveal choke points, uh, basically, that they can monitor, like, uh, the, the ceramic composites for the centrifuges that you have to have right. in order to pull this off. There's only so many companies that do that in the world. So, um, that, I mean, that's the good news. You can't run out to Walmart and buy the stuff to make this happen. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it, it makes it a little bit easier to monitor what's going on to a certain degree. Right. Um, that's gotta be a huge help, man. Having that. Oh, yeah. Especially together with human intelligence, which apparently is still one of the best ways to find out about a nuclear program. Sure. Um, there was this one, I think Syria was working on their nuclear program and they had, uh, with the assistance of North Korea, they had built a facility where they lowered the floor. Yes. So that they could start their military nuclear program in secret. And um, rather than a cooling tower, they connected to a nearby reservoir with underground pipes. Um, and they had this whole thing set up. And if you were looking at it and you were a military analyst looking for evidence of a nuclear facility being built, you would immediately check that building off the list because the, it was too low, too close to the ground. Like the, the it wasn't tall enough to house a, a nuclear facility. Yeah. And they did. Oh, I'm sure over and over. I'm sure they saw this building plenty of times. And it wasn't until um, some human intelligence gave it up that it, it became clear that, oh, actually, this is this is a nuclear facility. So it can you can fool. Oh, sure. The international even the nuclear detectives can be fooled is, I guess, what I'm saying, which is kind of surprising. But one of the ways that you do that is you you figure out how to build your nuclear program in house. You get detected when you start to spread out through the black market or to that company that makes the composites needed for centrifuges. Yeah, like Iran, for example, they used in in that same article, they can mine the uranium themselves. In the country, mm-hmm. which is a little scary. And then they can also, or they at least had been working on, uh, producing those centrifuge rotors instead, uh, with carbon fiber instead of the, the special steel that they need to outsource. So all of a sudden you're not on that list. You're doing it in-house. And it, I mean, it seems like from reading this, like the good news is they're getting more and more specialized equipment that you can detect stuff from further away mm-hmm. and our capabilities and the software is getting better and better. But these places are also finding more and more ways to sidestep traditional manufacturing means, which is kind of scary at the same time. Yeah, apparently um, Saddam Hussein had a nuclear program that he was working on that he was able to come up with. I I was mentioning it earlier where um, he did it by basically going retro. He used a process of um, separating uranium isotopes through uh, electromagnetism. Yeah rather than centrifuges. So he didn't need centrifuges. And apparently it's so uh, low-tech and um, so out of use that no analysts were looking for evidence of that. So they just totally missed it. But he was still able to come up with a nuclear program using that old, outdated technology, purposefully, yeah. from what I understand. Wow. 
Yeah, and then of course, nuclear, uh, North Korea's nuclear program was just a total surprise to everybody. I mean, people suspected it and were very concerned that it was going on, but it wasn't until Kim Jong Un or ill. I can't remember which one it would have been, but back in 2010, they invited a Stanford professor out and showed it to him so he could go tell the world. Yeah. And it shocked everybody. I remember when that happened. Done it. Yeah. Why in the world did they let that happen? Yeah. It, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know how it happened. I think it happened because of that guy we mentioned earlier, AQ Khan from Pakistan, who's the father of Pakistan's military nuclear program. Yeah. Um, who was educated in Europe and stole some blueprints for making nuclear weapons and went about building Pakistan one, right? Yeah. And then they started turning to countries like Libya, Iran, North Korea, and um, offering basically turnkey military nuclear programs based on Pakistan's designs for like $100 million. Wow. And then he got, he ended up as a scapegoat for his nation and was placed under house arrest, luxurious house arrest, but still, from what I understand, the guy was very upset about this because he went from being a, treated like a god to being treated like, you know, it's his fault that there's nuclear proliferation among rogue states. Right. Um, and was finally released a few years, I think five years later. And I mean, that guy, he deserves his own episode. He was fascinating. Or, yeah. I think still is. I believe he's still around too. What's his name? AQ Khan. Can we call it the Wrath of Khan? That's what they did in the Atlantic. Did they? <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Uh, so the big question is, and the economist, um, thankfully asked that, could you build a, a nuclear weapon in secret? And, uh, there's a couple of opinions there. They, they asked the foreign secretary of Pakistan, former foreign secretary, Riaz Mohammed Khan, and he said, nope, can't do that in secret anymore. Uh, but, uh, there was a anonymous American State Department, counter proliferation official who said uh it's not impossible so you know don't don't be fooled yeah it's a little 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 worrisome yeah it really is <laughs> <laughs> i mean you you really like to think that nobody could do this anymore but apparently it is getting easier and easier but like you said it's also making it easier and easier to detect it's like any illegal operations um it's like a game of cat and mouse with on the development side of developing good guys developing stuff bad guys developing stuff yeah it's really interesting but in this case this game of cat and mouse you have some of the smartest human beings on the planet who are who have banded together to say no no we're not going to let this happen yeah okay well if you want to know more about nuclear detectives or nuclear forensics start digging because there's plenty out there and man is it fascinating um since i said it's fascinating it's time for listener mail. So before we do listener mail, buddy, can we talk yeah. a little bit about our old friends at the Cooperative for Education? Oh, yes, let's, Chuck. So, co-ed. Yeah, the quick download with co-ed is we went to Guatemala uh, quite a few years ago with them. Mm -hmm. They invited us to come down, you, me, and Jerry. Mm -hmm. We all went down. We saw the great work they do, like real on-the-ground hard work helping Children of Guatemala pulled themselves out of poverty through education. Yeah, yeah. It's in our uh, two-part Guatemala special that everybody can go listen to if you haven't heard it. And get this, Chuck. So, Coed has another drive going on, and they are making it their mission to keep a 1,000 girls in Guatemala from dropping out of school by 2020. That's amazing, dude. It takes 12 years of education to break the cycle of poverty in Guatemala. 
but a poor rural Guatemalan has only one in 20 chance of reaching that milestone. Right. So they are literally identifying young women to literally keep them in school. Like, it's not some nebulous campaign and you're not sure where your money's going. You are helping a young woman in Guatemala stay in school and get educated. Yep. So you can sponsor one of those girls for $70 a month, or if you want to do half of that, $35 a month. Coed will match you with another sponsor to make sure that there is a student who is able to continue her education and therefore eventually break her family out of the cycle of poverty that dropping out of school perpetuates. Yeah, it's really great. They're awesome people. So uh, if you uh, weren't a good person this year and you want to make up <laughs> for it here before the end of the year, yeah. or if you want to start off 2018 in the right way, go to thousandgirlsinitiative.org. And that is all spelled out, not the number 1,000, mm-hmm. thousandgirlsinitiative.org. And uh, you can actually pick out the student you want to sponsor. It's just the best. Coed's great, and we're really happy that we're still working with them. Yep, so keep up the good work, Coed. And you guys, please, please go help these guys out. All right, uh, and now on to listener mail. Yes. I'm going to call this um, restaurant health inspection from a manager's perspective. Okay. And I do have permission to read this. I love listening to the show on health inspections, guys. Want to throw in a couple of tidbits from my point of view. Uh, First, you were spot on with just about everything with your research, including how some employees take no exception to sanitary practice. Those employees tend to not have a very long career. When the health inspector shows up and you see the staff start to scramble in the business, we call that the two-minute drill. And that is not to say that we don't keep our restaurant up to standards, because we do, but we want it to be perfect. Typically, the this made me feel a lot better, by the way, reading this. Yeah. Uh, typically, the HD uh, comes to the restaurant at the most inopportune times, right in the middle of a busy lunch service. At that point, the kitchen is cooking 100 dishes at the same time. Servers are running drinks and taking orders. Dirty dishes are stacking up a bit in the back. With the health inspection pass-fail scale being so specific, the slightest thing can fail you. Anything from an ice scoop in the ice bin to a fruit fly or a steak uh, resting at temperature that is off by 2 degrees. Uh, we as managers like to continue to train our staff to keep things tidy, but also have a few quick fixes in order to maintain that A rating. Uh, washing hands is a must anytime food is handled, especially when the inspectors are on site. As you know, it's a very nerve-wracking time while they are checking every nook and cranny. That is why we managers are required by law to get health certified to ensure we are training out staff properly and not allowing any boots in the Brunswick stew. Although he said bratwurst stew. so I saw that. I think he might be insane. <laughs> As always, thanks for an incredible podcast and providing us with information on things we may not usually have knowledge to prior. All the best, Derek. He said, P.S., we have remarkable cuisine at my place, so if you ever are in the area, come on by and we'll treat you to some great food. We have the best bratwurst stew in the region. Well, he didn't say what restaurant he worked at. So. <laughs> uh, oh, actually, it's in his email. Okay. I'm not going to read that, but they're in Boston, so maybe okay. when we go back to the uh, Wilbur. Theater. We can go get some Boston cream pie cake and then some bratwurst <laughs> stew. Delicious. Yeah. Cool. Thanks a lot. What was the guy's name? Derek. Thanks a lot, Derek. That was a great email, and yes, indeed, it did make it made me feel a lot better, too, Chuck. Uh, if you want to make me and Chuck feel better, well, just send us an email. Uh, first, you can tweet to us. I'm at Josh M. Clark and at SYSK Podcast. Chuck's man in the Facebook pages at Charles W. Chuck Bryant and at Stuff You Should Know. Uh, you can send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. As always, join us at our home on the web, stuffyoushouldknow.com. 
this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 